Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh, well, pardon me? That's how the story begins, Rizzo. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh. As dead as a doornail. It's a good beginning. It's creepy and kind of spooky. Oh, thank you, Rizzo. You're welcome, Mr. Dickens. Hello, cassettes, and welcome to season five of the Black Case Diaries. Every time we talk about like how long we've been doing this, it's like, <laughs> wow. I mean, it, really, two years. You is know, how long yeah, we've been right. We're three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV, and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Robin. I'm Marcy. And I'm Adam. This week, we are actually kicking off the Christmas season with a special look at one of our all-time favorite Christmas movies. Whoa. Yeah. Can you believe it's Christmas? Yeah. This year was the longest and shortest year of my life. It's like they say, the days are long, the years are short. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. That that is... (laughs) That explains... Yep. Yes. Yes. That explains this year in particular. Mm -hmm. So every year... My sister has this tradition, and we, <laughs> the first snow that we get, she says we need to watch A Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> We've gotten that snow in early October before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there was a time we were actually carving pumpkins oh, no. and watching A Muppet Christmas Carol because, because of this tradition. Amazing. So this movie is very special and important to my family. And I'm really excited to talk about it today. After the premiere of The Muppet Show in the 1970s, Kermit and his gang cemented their status as pop culture icons. After the show's conclusion, The Muppets starred in three successful movies, with more seemingly on the way. By the late 1980s, Walt Disney Studios was even discussing the possibility of purchasing The Muppet franchise from Jim Henson. Oh, he was negotiating it. Mm-hmm. He wanted Disney to own the Muppets. Yeah, some foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Then the unthinkable happened. In May of 1990, Jim Henson came down with a rare pneumonia caused by the same bacteria as strep throat. By the time he was admitted to the hospital, the infection had spread to his blood. The beloved father, husband, friend, and creator was dead within 24 hours. Wow. Not only did this loss devastate his family, It sent shockwaves through Jim Henson Productions, now known as the Jim Henson Company. Disney no longer pursued the Muppets due to the uncertain climate of their parent company. The future of the beloved Muppet franchise suddenly came into question, and when it was time to decide its fate, everyone turned to Henson's children, specifically his son, Brian. Man, oh man. I don't don't know how you could handle that, losing your father and then... All suddenly these people all, are like, well, what do we do? And they yeah. all look at you and you're like, uh, <laughs> I'm also at a loss. Brian Henson was named the new president of the company and ambitiously sought out new deals with studios to make more puppet and Muppet content. One of these deals was with Walt Disney Pictures to produce a movie based on one of the most famous stories of all time, A Christmas Carol. Oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> Although the 28-year-old Brian Henson was an experienced puppeteer, he felt he wasn't ready to direct the first Muppet movie after his father's death. He begged others to direct the film, but ultimately the task landed on his young shoulders. Not only did he have huge shoes to fill, but Brian understood the gravity of A Muppet Christmas Carol. The film was a test, and its success or failure would determine if the Muppets would continue. It was also Jim Henson Productions' opportunity to show Disney the value of the Muppets. Gosh, that's, that's <laughs> heavy, man. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. And this guy's 28, uh, which is what we are. Oh, my yes. gosh. <laughs> well, not me. So, this week, we are taking you to a different kind of Dickensian London, where Bob Cratchit is a frog and Charles Dickens himself is a blue alien from outer space. Yes, it is time to don our nightcaps and visit the past, present, and future of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Muppet Christmas Carol. Hooray! <laughs> a lot of people think this is the best adaptation of A Christmas yes, Carol. I would tend to agree with that. I will not say that there aren't any other good ones, obviously. Mm-hmm. We talked about it way back in episode yeah, one. There's a lot <laughs> yeah. of them. There's, there's a, lot of- a lot of them, and yeah. a lot of them are very good. Yes. But for me personally... I mean, 
Muppets. This one's very entertaining, that's for sure. Yeah. And it is very faithful, but it's a lot, it's it's very different in tone than the book. Yeah. So in terms of that, it's kind of, it's a little bit different, but definitely if, you're, if your child is going to watch this or learn this story, this is probably the best way to introduce a child. Yeah. And I mean, if the Muppet, if they had tried to make the Muppets like take it a little more seriously yeah. like the book, it wouldn't have worked, yeah. right? Nope. So I don't think they should have done that. Yeah. Right. Just before publishing A Christmas Carol in 1843, Charles Dickens's publisher had lost faith in the marketability of the author. Dickens's most recent book, Martin Chuzzlewit, had not sold well, and the book publisher felt that his next work should debut in an inexpensive collection or in a magazine. <laughs> Dickens believed in his work and was adamant that it should be a standalone book. So, he agreed to pay the publishing costs himself. After its December release, A Christmas Carol sold 6,000 copies by Christmas. It wasn't the sales Dickens had wanted, but it was still a success. You know, it's, it's fun, funny to think about ever there being a time where it's like, this Dickens guy, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if he's really marketable. I don't know if any of his books are like worth it anymore. It's like, what? Excuse me? Yeah. In case you have somehow avoided this story. If you have avoided this story, turn off this podcast <laughs> right now and go watch A Muppet Christmas Carol. At least. Or, yeah. Read or it, read it. Sake. Or yeah. something. I don't want us to be the way you learn about A Christmas Carol for the first time. I, you, please. That's too much weight for my shoulders. <laughs> but, hey, if you're going to be stubborn about it. <laughs> If you have somehow avoided this story, it follows Ebenezer Scrooge, a rich moneylender. Scrooge lives alone, dines in darkness, and saves every penny he has like a miser. When those that lend from Scrooge cannot pay, he puts them out in the cold. He does not listen to the cries of the poor, and he does not pay his clerk a fair wage. Sounds like a real jerk face. Yeah, sounds awesome. <laughs> Scrooge hates Christmas, writing it off as a silly holiday of frivolous spending. All this changes when Scrooge gets a Christmas Eve visit from his old partner, Jacob Marley. This is strange, since Marley has been dead for several years. Marley appears in chains, telling Scrooge that he is doomed for eternal damnation if he does not change his ways. After this, Scrooge then is visited by three more ghosts that show him the visions of Christmas past, present, and future. The ghosts hold up a mirror to Scrooge's soul, and their reflection is not flattering. He sees the man he was before, the childhood that formed him into a bitter adult, and a lost love that left him heartbroken. The final ghost leads Scrooge to his own grave, showing him that he will die alone with no love from anyone. But it isn't eternal damnation or the fear of being unloved that truly convinces Scrooge to change, though those were definitely factors. Most of all, it's the fate of Tiny Tim, the innocent, sickly child of Scrooge's clerk. One of the greatest things about this story, obviously he's done horrible things, mm -hmm. seemingly irredeemable things, mm -hmm. but it doesn't take a whole lot for him to completely change. You know, right. it, the yeah. him seeing Marley and, and Marley saying, hey, you're going to go to hell. That doesn't do it. <laughs> and it's OK, because he doesn't really believe it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he sees the other ghosts and it's almost like a therapy session. You know, he's seeing his past. He's coming to terms with his trauma, you know, in, in, which makes him become a better person and, and treat people better. And that starts to work. But then it's really him honestly just being put in the place of the Cratchits and seeing the Cratchits and their struggle is really what convinces him to change. His capacity to change is honestly very good mm -hmm. because if you think about somebody who does not care and then you're like, oh, if only they could see, if only they knew, I don't know, I don't, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't know, you know, <laughs> if it would actually work it or not. It reminds me of that show Secret Bosses. Oh, yeah, Undercover oh, Boss. Or Undercover Boss, undercover that's what it's boss. called. It's like, I mean... The show, they did a nice thing. Yeah. yeah. The company's still around. It's yeah. still doing yeah. the same old. Yeah. The, yeah. the cameras turn off and he's yeah, exactly. back to it. Throughout his career, Charles Dickens was often concerned with impoverished children and even helped charities 
that support education for the poor. He devised the story of Ebenezer Scrooge to illustrate the dangers of apathy towards your fellow man. Charles Dickens is one of the most well-known authors of the 19th century, and A Christmas Carol is possibly his most famous work. I mean, there's no, no doubting that. Yeah. yeah. A Christmas Carol is a tradition so intertwined with Christmas, it would be hard to imagine the holiday without it. Dickens appealed to audiences with lovable, innocent characters like Tiny Tim and showed how dangerous it can be to stop caring for those who are in need and how those with the ability to help should. He paired this message with elements of horror, hoping to shock audiences and adding excitement to the story. Yeah, this is a horror story. That's the thing. We don't really think of it as scary because we're so used to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this is a scary story. Yeah. If you take away the knowledge of how it ends, mm -hmm. then then it feels a lot more scary, yeah. especially mm -hmm. with the Christmas Christmas yet to come ghost and yeah. Marley being in chains. Like there are mm -hmm. elements that are very very creepy. Yeah, the when Marley visits him and you have this honestly terrifying scene where Scrooge is in a dark room alone just waiting for the ghost to come in. Mm -hmm. He hears the ghost. He hears the chains. He hears the scraping. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is like a long, really drawn-out, suspenseful scene. They do it in the Muppet Christmas Carol version, too. Mm -hmm. But then also, Marley not only explains that he's going to hell, he opens the window and shows him all the other lost souls. And that yeah. that's something that is a lot more, it's a lot darker and a little more terrifying. Not just that Marley was so bad mm -hmm. that he was the only one who's in this situation. It's like, no, it's not that hard to be bad. I mean, look at all these other people. They're yeah. not, you know, they may not mm -hmm. be as bad as me, but right. hey. And this idea of the chains is a really interesting depiction of mm -hmm. hell. And also... This depiction of hell in the sense that you now walk the earth and you see your fellow man suffering, but you have no power to do anything about it. Yeah. The story has lasted for so long because the message will always be relevant, and Scrooge's redemption is one of the most inspiring in literature. It's very hopeful. Right, and that, that's what I'm saying. Now that we know how it ends... It doesn't feel quite as bad because it's like mm -hmm. it's a redemption story. Yeah. But just, you know. So there's also been many other notable versions, of course. We talked about a lot of these again in our very first way, episode. Way, way back. We've yeah. talked about before. But when producer Bill Haber first suggested the Muppets adapt the famous story, Brian Henson was hesitant because the story had been done so many times before. He was unsure how to make the Muppet version stand out. As we talked about in our very first episode of our show, this story has been adapted to film possibly more than any other piece of literature. This version is among our favorites, which includes Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol and George C. Scott's A Christmas Carol. Yes. Yes, those are both great as well. I also would like to toss in the Christmas Carol musical. And... Some people really hate on the, the animated Jim Carrey one. It's, it's, not, it's just not, horrifying. It, well, yeah. The... <laughs> it's not like it's a bad movie. It's just... <laughs> yeah. The, you get that uncanniness. Yeah. But, you know, but there are so many ones. Everybody's got a favorite, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's always fun to see the Muppets in a place where they seemingly don't belong. This was only the fourth Muppet film and it was the first time the Muppets adapted classic literature. Since the film needed to be a success, both the Jim Henson Company and Walt Disney Pictures decided that adapting a well-known story was the way to pull in more moviegoers. Yeah, up to this point, the Muppets played themselves in all their movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was the first time they're playing another character. Yeah, they're <laughs> acting. Yeah, the Muppets are acting. <laughs> Which yes. is pretty great. Yeah. Say what you want about Disney, but, you know... A little bit of props to helping out with this. Otherwise, the Muppets probably wouldn't be around anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about how the movie was made. Oh, yes. We know we have to do this part. We oh, have to, yeah. This boring part about how the movie was made. <laughs> it's not oh. boring. Excuse me. <laughs> I obviously don't think it's boring. Otherwise, I wouldn't <laughs> sit and comb through 
all information. (laughs) The environment at the Jim Henson Company was certainly fragile when production began. Not only had the team lost their leader, but they were also shaken by the sudden death of Richard Hunt, another beloved Muppet performer. Hunt had provided the voices of Scooter and Statler during his time in The Muppet Show and tragically passed away in 1992 at age 40 from AIDS. Oh, man. Yeah. We lost a lot of wonderful creators and artists to AIDS, especially in the 80s and 90s. Too many. Yeah. As we said before, this was Brian's directorial debut. Jeffrey Katzenberg of Walt Disney Pictures recognized the sensitive nature of the project and stepped back to allow the team to work on their production as they saw fit. Michael Caine, who was chosen to play Scrooge, was actually surprised to learn that it was Brian's first time directing, as he felt he was doing an incredible job. Again, that is such a heavy mm-hmm. burden, I guess. Like, <laughs> I'd be so yeah. worried the entire time. <laughs> yeah. I'd be questioning every decision I made. Yeah, and it's. I think what, what really happened here was that you had Jim Henson pass away and all of his best friends, his coworkers, all these people that believed in the Muppets and that mm-hmm. this was their life. It was more than a job to them. Yeah. And then, you know, they said, Brian, you've got to do it. And I think, you know, he had this really nice support system and cushion, mm-hmm. you know, because he had all these really experienced, knowledgeable yeah. people that were like, hey, you're in charge, but we're we're right here yeah you know we and i think that's really what helped make it so successful yeah and he had worked with his dad on so many things he had been around it his whole life yeah at the heart of almost every classic muppet moment is writer jerry jewel jewel if you recall from our muppet show episode we're doing lots of callbacks this week yeah we are Uh was one of the head writers for the muppets from the beginning and he returned to pen this script as well The screenplay went through many changes. For example, the original plans were to make an uproarious telling of the Charles Dickens classic, with well-known Muppets playing all the largest parts. Robin the Frog was meant to be the ghost of Christmas past, Miss Piggy, Christmas present, and Animal as the ghost of Christmas yet to come. That would have been pretty wild. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was going to be a parody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, they were going to skewer it, which is something that they often did on The Muppet Show. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. After entertaining this idea and beginning the script, Brian Henson began to feel that his father would have wanted a truer adaptation. Both he and Joel decided to focus on not only being true to the original story, but on the wonderful narration that Dickens used, making this adaptation one of the most faithful ever created. Wow. Ultimately, they decided that a human lead for Scrooge was best, as it grounded the Muppets in a sense of reality. Jewel decided that for the first time, the Muppets wouldn't get introductions and would instead appear organically in the story. I think that is a good move also. The only one who kind of sort of gets introduced is Charles Dickens, Mm -hmm. you know. And Rizzo the Rat. And Rizzo, Rizzo, yeah. Yeah. But um, that's because they're kind of outside the story, you know, being a narrator. You think of Kermit as this big, great star. And the Muppet, right? right. We all yeah. know Kermit. And he literally has no entrance in this movie. The characters walk into the scene, and he's just there. Mm-hmm. He's just sitting at his desk. He's just part of the scene. Yeah. And the most effective touch was to have Charles Dickens himself be in the movie, reciting his own prose to the audience. Exactly. Because the Muppets were known for flipping the script, the men chose the least likely Muppet as their Victorian narrator, a blue daredevil alien named Gonzo. <laughs> what what a good choice. I mean, <laughs> thinking about it now, it's hard to imagine it being any of the other ones. Right. I, mean, mm-hmm. I guess Kermit would have been like your top choice to be the narrator, yeah. right? But then he wouldn't be in the movie. Exactly. Really. And he had Kermit has that very like humble appearance and yeah. he's able to be Bob Cratchit. Yeah, he makes a mm-hmm. perfect. Cratchit. Yeah. He's someone you definitely relate to the moment you see him, you know, in the movie. And Gonzo is so out there, he probably would not have fit into the story otherwise. Yeah. Though they said there was a time when they did consider him to be the ghost of Christmas future and you would see his nose sticking out of the Oh, out of the hood. Out of that the hood. Would have been funny. That would have been a nice little gag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once the team had Charles Dickens in the film, they were able to have 95% of Gonzo's lines be taken directly from the original story. 
Joel balanced the film's tone from scary to lighthearted with the inclusion of witty dialogue and signature Muppet slapstick. Joel and the others working on the movie were always coming up with ways to make Rizzo the Rat suffer. Rizzo gets frozen, chased by a cat, and even lands on a burning hot turkey in a fireplace. Poor Rizzo. <laughs> yeah, I think he, as a kid, he was always one of my favorite characters. Yes. I loved seeing what happened to Rizzo. Yeah. <laughs> it was the... like, oh, what's going to happen next? <laughs> yes. And Rizzo not only speaks as the filmmaker speaking so at times, he also speaks as the audience. So Rizzo is that mm-hmm. is that vehicle for us, vehicle. you know? He's yep. the one asking the questions that we're having. Right, And right. he even has his little snacks, his little yes. jelly beans. <laughs> his little jelly beans, which I guess were originally bonbons. Yes, oh. but apparently Americans won't know what bonbons are. I guess we don't are. know what bonbons are, we don't so know what they bonbons switched bonbons it. They, they sound delicious, whatever they are. I mean, they do sound amazing, they, but they're they a do. British snack, so yes. they changed it. Rizzo also voices some of the concerns that the filmmakers themselves had. For example, he asks Gonzo if this is too scary for the kids. And with that, the spirits of Scrooge's partners vanished into the darkness, leaving him once again alone in his room. Whoa, that's scary stuff. Hey, should we be worried about the kids in the audience? No, it's all right. This is culture. One of the most memorable scenes includes Rizzo climbing a giant fence and jumping from it only for the audience to find that he was able to slip through the bars of the fence the entire time. Gonzo shakes his head and says, You are such an idiot. What? What? Hey, what? What? Which was something that Dave Goles, Gonzo's puppeteer, often said to Steve Whitmire, Rizzo's puppeteer. Oh. Yeah. Nice. So they like to add these little these little things that show the personality of the puppeteers. Yeah. And those guys would always goof around, and that's something he would always say to yeah, them. Yeah, it's a very Muppet Show thing. You yeah. Know? So <laughs> it's, it's ingrained in the Jim Henson Company to do yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, the yes. jelly bean scene is incredibly funny. It's one, one of the best scenes, <laughs> right? Yes. Because what's going on in the background is Scrooge is about to be visited by the ghosts. Mm-hmm. It's spooky. It's kind of weird. And then you have Rizzo and Gonzo in the back, and they're just trying to get closer to the house so they can tell more of the story. <laughs> and Rizzo is like, wait, I forgot my jelly beans. <laughs> I was like, I need them. I just had them. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the production of the movie. The production designer was Val Strazovec, who would also work on Muppet Treasure Island. Hey. Another favorite. The Muppets pose an interesting challenge in terms of production design. If you don't understand how to set up a scene with Muppets, they will all end up in the bottom of the frame and you can't see the bottom half of the character because often the characters don't have bottoms at all. (laughs) Every set was built four feet off the ground and Michael Caine had to walk on planks among the puppets without looking at his feet. The floor was often added in post for most scenes. Oh. In the opening credits, we're given a view of the London rooftops. These rooftops, however, are miniatures, about three feet in height. As the camera pans backwards, the crew would move buildings into the frame in order to have an illusion of passing through them. I, watching that and knowing it, because I've watched this opening sequence so many times. (laughs) I was like, what? And I could totally imagine them just standing there like, okay, ready, 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 go. And they're just like pushing buildings into the frame. Wow. (laughs) Sounds like an Olympic sport or something. All right, let's go. That's so impressive. And it worked so seamlessly. Yeah. The street shots had a tricky illusion to them as well. Although the set itself was pretty large, the buildings toward the back were much shorter in comparison in order to achieve a bigger looking space with forced perspective. In order to shoot forced perspective, you have to move the camera parallel and be careful not to turn toward or away from the models or you will shatter the illusion. Gotta be careful. Yeah. Yeah, very careful. Often in movies with relatively low budgets, you will see the rule of one applied. This means when an expensive effect is used, it will only appear once, even if the audience is meant to believe that it happens several times. 
Filmmakers will use the effect the one time, accompanied by a noise, and when they need the effect again, they just play that same noise without the visual, and the audience then uses the context clues to assume the effect happened again. Yeah. No way. <sighs> yes. Tricky I, buggers. I have to, I am going to meticulously watch <laughs> this now. I need to catch those. Yeah, it's actually, what, what they used it for in this movie was mm-hmm. traveling back in time. Uh-huh. In between scenes. Okay. And so when they first go, they use this real big, you know, yeah. visual and you hear the music of them going back in time and and then later on, all they do is fade to white and then fade from white to color. And they use the same sound effect and you don't even think about it. You don't yeah, even Yeah, cuz you already know they just, how they travel. Yeah, they you just already did know. the same thing. It's just yeah. shortened. So. Yeah. Oh my. You don't even consider it. You're just, "Oh yeah, okay, now we're in a different time." So you just know they're in a different time wow. now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. There were many scenes shot in front of green screens, especially with the more magical Muppets, so they could be composited in later. Pretty much the the ghost puppets yeah. were <laughs> were shot this way. Yeah, you what? can give them that little transparent mm-hmm. effect too. Yeah, mm. there's a scene where Kermit is dancing uh, while he's singing with Tiny Tim. Yeah, that was also a green screen too because you've got uh, what you need for those scenes mm-hmm. are people actually moving the legs mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Is it like people in green suits mm-hmm. standing? Wow. Uh, yeah. Because I was thinking like you have this. Mm-hmm. Maybe this would be even more complicated and not worth it at all, but. Doing the top half of Kermit, you know, the normal mm-hmm. way, and then doing the bottom half kind of opposite, mm-hmm. and oh. then kind of stitch them together in post, I guess. But that seems more complicated yeah. now mm-hmm. that you say this green screen, that'd be way easier. Yeah. <laughs> was, it, was it a green ski screen or was it blue? Oh, I mean, it, Kermit it is probably, green. It was probably blue. <laughs> yeah. Good point. That's true. That's true. It ain't easy being green. Most Muppets are left-handed because their puppeteers are right-handed. Most small, full-body Muppets are remote-controlled, like the rats and mice. Anytime a Muppet is shot from above, the puppeteer's arm is being hidden by the puppet's body. These are usually the easiest shots to film. Yeah, so they're standing underneath the mm-hmm. stage that's about four feet high, four or five feet high, and they have their arm up in the Muppet, mm-hmm. and yes. the, the Muppet is over the hole, so... Mm-hmm. Right. Like the scene where Rizzo's in the barrel. Yes. And they're looking down. And his little foot's barrel. tapping, which is yes. the cutest little detail. So <laughs> and then later on when Bean Bunny is looking up at Scrooge. Aww. There is one scene with rain, and puppets in the rain are always hard to shoot. Puppeteers are watching monitors, so it's risky to use them with water. But they still did it because they wanted it to be the least romantic weather for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's Ohio <laughs> big time. Yeah, you rain imagine... on Christmas. Yes, it is. You think about how hard some of these things are, and, and you imagine being part of the crew, and you're kind of like, "Hey, Brian, like, how much do we really need there to be rain in this movie?" I feel like, like could it just be cloudy? Could it just like not be anything? Like, <laughs> why? Yeah, we maybe just show the snow melting, yeah. so it's still like. Maybe it rained last night. Yeah, or not... there's just puddles or something. Or... <laughs> nope, rain. A Christmas Carol can be a grim story, and Brian didn't want to take away from its serious nature. But he and the rest of the crew understood that they needed to balance levity with the darker imagery. Because of this, there are many scenes that were shot with two crews. One crew would focus on the main action of the scene, with the Scrooge narrative. The other crew would follow the actions in the background with Muppet characters like Gonzo and Rizzo, which happened simultaneously. Scrooge's story never stopped when Gonzo and Rizzo had the audience's attention, which was effective in pulling the younger viewers out of the story and reminding them it was just a movie. A good example would be the schoolhouse scene. Where they're in the back and the shelf is collapsing yes. and they're and they're t- trying to desperately not get crushed by all the statues, <laughs> and at the same time we've got young Scrooge being talked to by his you know professor and and so the scene you're following both actions at the same time and you mm-hmm. see this crazy stuff going on in the background. And one day your life will be as solid as this very building. <laughs> hmm, I've been meaning to fix that shelf. 
In order to accommodate both people and Muppets, the film was shot at the Shepperton Studios in the UK. So one of the best, bestie best things about this rendition of the story is the music. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the songs were written by Paul Williams, the man who also penned the songs for the original Muppet movie which we also love very mm-hmm, much. Mm-hmm. Brian Henson has said that he believes that Williams is the most successful Muppet songwriter. He is able to capture both the silly nature of the Muppets and their heartfelt moments as well. His lyrics are very sincere and match the characters perfectly, mm-hmm. which is so true. The song that Kermit sings, the, just to like start out, you know, it just gets you in the mood. But yeah, yet mm-hmm. it just feels like something his character would do because he likes Christmas so much. It just, you know, it fits in so well. The first song of the film, Scrooge, sung by the Muppet Chorus, establishes the main character through every other character's opinion of him. It was important for the audience not to see Scrooge's face until the end of the song, after each character has painted a picture of him for the audience. There's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed, is the one that we call Scrooge. It's like they're doing that classic thing where you don't reveal the monster yeah. for a while. Scrooge liked the cold. He was hard and sharp as a flint, secret and self-contained, as solitary as an oyster. This song is very akin to Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. Where a, a main character is introduced, and we don't hear from that character, really. We're hearing yeah. from everybody else and their opinion of that character. Mm. And it's so important for this movie because Scrooge, this whole narrative, everything hinges on our opinion of Scrooge and Mm -hmm. everyone else's opinion of Scrooge because Scrooge is not the kind of character that is going to say, hey, by the way, I'm terrible. (laughs) Scrooge doesn't think that about himself. And why, you know, why really, why would he? That's a realization that he comes to throughout the movie Mm -hmm. so in the beginning here we need to hear everybody else's interpretation of scrooge and they do such a good job with this beautiful song there is even a little bit where they say he must be so lonely he must be so sad he goes to extremes to convince us he's bad he's merely a victim of fear and of pride they kind of plants the seed there early for the audience and for the kids and everybody hey you know he might not be that bad let's like there might be a reason why he is the way he is. Yeah. A little different than the Grinch one, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Your soul is an appalling <laughs> dump heap. <laughs> the line, please, sir, I want some cheese, was a favorite among children. And a reference to another Dickens work, Oliver Twist. Yeah, when you're walking through, yes. they're walking through the streets, you see the mice, please, sir, I want some cheese. <laughs> I have to say, as a child, that was also one of my very favorite parts of the movie. Yes. I loved that part. Mm -hmm. And it was funny to hear Brian Henson say on the commentary, children loved this for some reason. (laughs) I think it was a combination of the fact, I think we already knew Oliver Twist as well. Yeah. That was also a very familiar story to us. It got retold. Not as many times probably as this one, but I feel like it was also a... A familiar one. Even if you don't know Oliver Twist, you know, please, sir, might have some more. Mm -hmm. Yes. Room in Your Heart was a song performed by Honeydew and Beaker that was ultimately cut from the movie as well, but can be found on the soundtrack. Yeah. Which is nice. I'm glad it's still there. Mm -hmm. One More Sleep Till Christmas had a lot of technically difficult shots in it, like Kermit's hand locking the door and penguins sliding on ice. Yeah, the, the reflection and the ice had to be added in post later. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. look at that. But the most memorable shot is of a full-body Kermit standing beneath the night sky as a shooting star passes. This moment was a tribute to Jim Henson, who had used a shooting star in the first Muppet movie. Ever since, a shooting star has been a signature for Kermit, and one has appeared in the Muppet Treasure Island and Muppets in Space. And unfortunately, Aww. not in the new Muppet movies, which is a shame. Oh, that oh, is man. a shame. What are you playing at? The star happens to pass as one of the rats yells, Merry Christmas, 
And audiences often think the star is saying it instead. I thought yes. that until a week ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was a spaceship because yeah. it happens right as the star goes. You hear, yeah. Merry Christmas. From one of the one of the rats. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! And I was, yeah. what? That's supposed to be? I had no idea. I mean, in the Muppet world, it's not that fantastical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have Gonzo. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. When Roger Ebert saw the film, his favorite song was "Marley and Marley." The tune was performed by Statler and Waldorf as the two Marleys. The book, of course, only has one Marley, but having both characters added a special comedic dynamic to an otherwise spooky scene. This is where it gets real spooky, and they let it get really spooky, and then pop, we've got these two comedic characters appear, they're laughing, they're being silly. The Muppets were covered in white powder and filmed in front of a black sheet with their operators wearing black as well. They were then superimposed on the film to make them look transparent. One notable line from the song, as freedom comes with giving love, so prison comes with hate. It's a lot of really great lines in these songs that are always relevant and everyone should listen to this music. Absolutely. Bless Us All is Tiny Tim's song, sung by the Muppet Robin. This song is one of the emotional anchors of the movie, and when it is later revealed that Tiny Tim has died, you can hear its melody being played in the score. This is the last song until the finale, leaving the audience with a lot of happiness and heart just before the darkest part of the film. God bless us. Everyone. The Love is Gone, the song sung by Belle when her and Ebenezer go their separate ways, was cut from the theatrical release and added back in for VHS and TV versions. Oh, I didn't know that at all. I've only ever seen that the version with it. I know, me mm-hmm. too. We grew yeah. up with it, and it wasn't until years later I was showing the movie to people, and I noticed they're breaking up, and then Rizzo's crying, and I thought, there's a Hold song on. there. What happened? Why is the song gone? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually kind of jarring if you are used to the song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Henson said this when discussing the lost footage of When Love is Gone to the online site The Big Issue. When we tried cutting it into the Blu-ray movie, it looked terrible because you could tell we'd cut from high resolution to the original video release. He added, I'm still pressuring them to find it. They keep swearing to me that there is no way it has been lost forever. And I keep saying, but it's been 20 years. Oh, man. Now 28 years? Yes. (laughs) They're still searching. I call them like every month to ask if they're still looking. One of these days, they'll find it. What a time that will be. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. they still haven't because the Disney Plus version does not have the song. Right. Yeah, so I saw one tweet last year when Disney Plus just came out and someone said, add when love is gone back into a Muppet Christmas Carol, you cowards. <laughs> I mean, really. Yes. We don't care if it's a lower version, lower yeah, res we don't version. Care. We Come don't on, care. just get it in there. Yeah. Katzenberg from Disney, if you guys remember from earlier, pushed to remove the song because the runtime of the movie was a little long and he felt the scene might bore the children watching as there were no Muppets. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It truly was a shame, however, because Paul Williams brought the melody of the song back at the end of the film with different lyrics, showing the contrast of Scrooge's change of heart. The ending song is When Love is Found. You need it. You Mm -hmm. need this other song. And it's not, honestly, it's not that boring of a song. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember watching it. We sat through it. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. we got up and left the room. It's not like that song in The Music Man. That I don't uh. think I've ever heard because, <laughs> because <laughs> that is your bathroom. You know break what I'm one. talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The song, It Feels Like Christmas, was originally meant to show Christmas all around the world, but it became clear that they just didn't have the budget for that. The song ends with a shot that reveals the forced perspective and the true size of the buildings. But Brian Henson liked the shot, so he kept it in anyway. When they pan out, you can, mm. you can tell that it's a set and that the buildings aren't very big yeah. because the Muppet is six feet tall. But I guess if you're thinking of the Muppet being so gigantic, you're, you're thinking, oh, okay, it's probably, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like them being done with the play you know, as if this movie was yeah. a play on stage. Mm-hmm. And when 
they're all done. They all face the audience yeah. and like take their bows and stuff. It's like it kind of has that vibe. And it to breaks it. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Shortly before Jim Henson's death, songwriter Paul Williams started recovering from his drug and alcohol addiction. He was the Oscar-nominated musician who had written the iconic song Rainbow Connection for the first Muppet movie, and now felt that his career was over. That was until Brian Henson called and asked him to write the songs for A Muppet Christmas Carol. Williams felt a special connection to Scrooge's story of redemption, especially with the song A Thankful Heart. Williams was so grateful for his recovery, an opportunity to further his songwriting career. Later on, Williams told Vulture about the song, There was a connectedness to the world around me, and a level of gratitude that, to this day, is probably one of the most powerful emotions I've ever experienced. Wow. Mm-hmm. Brian Henson, when he was made the director, he said, I want Paul Williams to do the songs. He did such a good job with the first movie. Mm-hmm. And they reportedly told him, well, Paul Williams has been lost to alcohol and drugs. Like, oh, man. And so he said, let's give him a call anyway, see what happens. Lo and behold. Yes, and lo and behold. Perfect. Michael Caine's imperfect vocals matched the now humble Scrooge, and the song was a wonderfully sweet conclusion to the classic story. The score was composed by Miles Goodman, who has composed for movies like Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, deserves much better than the 7% it has on Rotten Tomatoes, Larger Than Life, and Teen Wolf. Hey. Cool. Yeah, and it is a nice, it is a neat little score with a lot of nice little leitmotif. He Mm -hmm. worked really well with Paul Williams. So now we're going to dive a little bit into some of the actual characters of the movie, you know. Who the playing. ghosts. The, we're going to start with the ghosts. <laughs> the puppet for Christmas Past was actually shot in oil and water. After a while, the puppet began to deteriorate because she was made of foam and other softer material. So in some shots, she looks much better than others. She, she was floating in this tank, so that way she would look mm-hmm. more ethereal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, incredibly clever mm-hmm. because... The only thing that I would have thought to do is maybe use like a big fan and then slow uh, her footage down yeah. or something like that. Uh. But this is way cooler and it probably worked out way better. Mm-hmm. Jessica Fox, the young girl that voiced the ghost, did all of her lines in about one day. Brian Henson said that she was a natural and read her lines perfectly almost every time. Yeah. Aww. Nice work. I told you these were the shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. Next is the ghost of Christmas present. The book describes the ghost as gigantic. So he first appears to be massive next to Scrooge. Ho, 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 ho. Come in and know me better, man. Ho, 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 ho. The puppet itself was only about six feet tall. So they composited the character into the frame to look bigger in his first scene. For the rest of his screen time, puppeteers used the six-foot puppet. One puppeteer walked around in the ghost suit while the eyes and mouth were remote-controlled. Jerry Nelson operated the face while Don Austin did the body movement. Nelson was one of the first puppeteers to join the Jim Henson Company back before The Muppet Show even began. The ghost of Christmas Present only lives on Christmas Day which is why he grows old and gray before leaving. Over 1,800 of my brothers came before me. How many years of Christmas? Yeah, so it's 1843. He says, over 1,800 of my brothers have come before me, meaning that he is Christmas. This ghost is Christmas. Wow. This ghost is where the movie differs in tone from the book. Originally, his scenes are much darker, and the ghost does not let up when Scrooge finally realizes he cares for the fate of Cratchit's son. This is the famous scene where the ghost uses Scrooge's earlier words against him. If these shadows remain unaltered, I believe the child will die. But what then? If he's going to die, he'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, spirit. Ouch. In the book, the ghost actually says, It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Damn, son. <laughs> Sticking it to him. He needed, the, he needed to hear that for sure. Yeah. So 
the ghost of Christmas present is not as jolly and fun. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I think, the biggest shift from the book is this big tonal change. And finally, we have the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The ghost is moving on a train track with the actor standing on a platform. And he was performed by Don Austin and Rob Tigner. For his entrance, they filled the stage with smoke. They could only do one take because the smoke was so thick, it would take hours for it to clear so they could shoot it again. Gosh. (laughs) With this ghost, Scrooge visits the Cratchits once again. This time, the scene was written and filmed to be identical to when Scrooge saw this with the ghost of Christmas present, to further drive home the fact that Tiny Tim is gone. Yeah, almost everything is the same. So when he first saw the Cratchits preparing for Christmas, Mm -hmm. right... The mom is home, the girls are home, they're turning the turkey in the fire, the dad mm-hmm. comes home from church. All of that is the exact same in the future version, right. except Tiny except- Tim is gone. Yeah. It's all right, children. Life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I am sure we shall never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting that there was among us. devastating heavy (laughs) yeah all right so now let's talk about some of the stars of this yay so michael kane of course was ebenezer scrooge brian henson said that kane is one of those great actors that can lock into emotion in a scene Michael Caine insisted when playing the role to act as though he was in the Royal Shakespeare Company, working with real actors and not Muppets. His dramatic portrayal, while intimidating at first, brought Scrooge to life. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips would be cooked with his own turkey Mm. and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Well, not quite speechless. Oh, I'm cool. Nephew. You keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine. I th- I think it really, really works because it grounds the movie, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about it earlier, how they wanted to ground the Muppets in mm-hmm. a realistic setting. You know, they have their slapstick moments and whatnot, but in order to take the story at least a little bit seriously, having Scrooge be taken seriously yeah. the whole time yeah. is is the perfect way to go. In an interview with Entertainment Tonight, Kane said, I mean, people say, never make pictures with animals or children. They ought to try Muppets. They are the biggest scene stealers of all. (laughs) (laughs) I think about Michael, a very serious Michael Kane, trying to stay in character, and right behind him he's got Gonzo Mm -hmm. and Rizzo being ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, man, could you imagine? How many how many outtakes? <laughs> the great Gonzo was Charles Dickens. Both Gonzo and Rizzo are not meant to be part of the story, but at the end when Scrooge taps them on the head, it's meant to signal to the audience that they are now part of the story, which brings closure to the characters. Right, so they don't just disappear into yes. nothing. Yes, Aww. they they weren't really in the story, they were just telling it. And now Scrooge is acknowledging their existence. And so it's like a subtle way to say, okay, they're here now. Also, Gonzo is played by Dave Goles. Kermit the Frog was Bob Cratchit and Rizzo the Rat as himself. When we see full-body Kermit, ten puppeteers would operate him. This film is the first one where Steve Whitmire steps in to fill Jim Henson's shoes after his sudden death. When talking about the movie, Steve recalls being scared to take on such an important role that means so much to everyone. He also described The Guardian, a dream he had before filming began, where he tells Jim Henson that he is nervous about taking over Kermit. In the dream, Jim thinks for a minute and then simply says, it'll pass. Man, you know, when people describe stuff like that, it makes me really think, like, it's all got to mean something, right? Yeah, like he really visited him. You know? Yeah. Miss Piggy as Emily Cratchit. 
They were worried that Miss Piggy wouldn't really be able to pull off the role of Emily Cratchit because she was supposed to be this perfect housewife. So the character does some very piggy things, like sneaking some chestnuts and mixing up the names of her children. (laughs) (laughs) So subtle, but (laughs) so clean, so funny. Frank Oz performed Piggy as he had for years, and the other puppeteers like to make fun of Oz for the way he performs the character, which is why Belinda and Bettina, the young pigs, shame Piggy for sneaking chestnuts. <laughs> this was this is just them making fun of him. Making like fun. Yeah, just messing with him while he Perfect. plays the character. Fozzie Bear as Fozziewig, played by Frank Oz. <laughs> Fezziwig is the name of the original character. I feel like this is this was the idea that made them want to do the movie. When yeah. they were like, ah, should we do a Christmas carol? And they were probably looking through the book and they saw Fezziwig and they said, we have to. <laughs> it's too close to Fozzie. It's too close. Yep. Just, we'll just change put, one letter. Yeah, put him in a yeah, big wig. Just, yep. Statler and Waldorf as Marley and Marley, played by Jerry Nelson and Dave Goals. You know, because of this movie, I'd always thought that they were Marley Brothers in every other ad- version of the story until I saw those other uh, ones. Because oh. I do think this is the first one I saw. Mm-hmm. I knew of the story, but I'd never really, you know, comprehended yeah. every detail. Mm-hmm. But then when there was only one Jacob Marley in every other version, I'm like, oh. Oh. I guess the Muppet one is the, is the outlier. <laughs> you just get a little extra with the Muppet. Yeah. Yeah. It's Ebenezer Scrooge, oh. looking older and more wicked than ever. I knew he wouldn't disappoint us. <laughs> Robin as Tiny Tim. Jerry Nelson voiced Robin, who is Kermit's nephew in the Muppet verse. So cute. Bean Bunny as a caroler, played by Steve Whitmire. Brightly shone the moon that night, though. <clears throat> What do you want? Uh, a penny for the song, Governor? <laughs> when Bean Bunny was created, he was meant to be so sickeningly sweet that the cast and crew loved to hate on him. He would be so cute and almost pathetic-seeming that he would become a fan favorite. Muppet Christmas Carol is Bean Bunny's most well-known appearance, but it, he has been in several Muppet shows and movies. That scene where he's penny for the song, governor, and he just slams the door in his face. Uh-huh. But then when he opens the door again, Bean Bunny gets the most hopeful, hopeful. look you've ever seen. Yeah. He turns around and he just throws this huge wreath at him. Uh-huh. And then later on, there's a scene where you just see Bean Bunny shivering in the cold by himself. And there's some sad music. And you're like, oh, my God. This is the worst ever. <laughs> He's too cute. Why? Ralph the dog as himself. Ralph was Jim Henson's character, and this was his first appearance after his death, so they didn't recast. They just had Ralph play piano in the Fozzie Wig scene instead, as a little nod to Henson. Yeah, I guess, you know, you have to recast Kermit, but then, you know, just for yeah. that, they were like, because he was, this, this was a very Jim Henson character. Mm-hmm. Meredith Braun as Belle, Christoph Milnes as the young boy Ebenezer, and Ray Coulterd as the young man Ebenezer. Nice. Very nice. Yes. They all did great. A Muppet Christmas Carol was a moderate success at the box office despite being against Home Alone 2 and Disney's Aladdin. Good grief. Yeah. Those are some big ones. <laughs> that's some competition. Yeah. Heavy there. hitters. Absolutely. The film's earnings weren't spectacular, but better than expected. And it was enough of a success to keep the Muppets alive. Many consider its seamless blend of humor and darkness to be the absolute perfect adaptation of the story with just the right amount of Muppet magic. It's, it's really so true. And mm-hmm. thank goodness that I did it. As well as it did. Because yeah. if the Muppets weren't around, 
That'd be so mm-hmm. sad. I mean, we'd I guess we'd have the Muppet Show to go back and watch and the original movie. Right, right. But like, I'm so glad to see all of the other stuff that we got after this. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad the, that they're still relevant. Muppet yeah. Treasure Island and Muppets in Space. You mm-hmm. know, people do really like those movies. And then, of course, then when they revived them with Disney, because Disney did eventually buy the Muppets. It mm-hmm. was about 14 years later. <laughs> um, but you know, they they did eventually buy the Muppets, and so which is what Jim Henson always wanted. And they were able to make two Muppet movies. A weird, short-lived TV show, ABC and thingy. and now they've got Muppets Now. Is that what it's yep. called Muppets on now. Disney Plus? Yeah, yeah. And it's a little bit more Muppet showy. I, we talked about it back in yeah. our Muppet Show episode. It's a step in the right direction, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, I feel like when they brought it back with Jason Segel, that was perfect. That was mm-hmm. yeah. That movie is awesome. Yeah, and the winner of eighteen forty three. Author Charles Dickens paid his own publishing costs to prove to a disbelieving publisher the marketability of his work. 149 years later, a young Brian Henson used the same story to prove to audiences everywhere the enduring appeal of the Muppets. For Dickens, the sales were fine, but not spectacular. The same went for Henson. But, luckily for both men, success is not defined by money alone. Brian Henson and the rest of the Muppet crew, Jerry Jewell, Steve Whitmire, Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Dave Goles, and others, were able to carry on the dream of their late friend, a dream that almost certainly would have fizzled out, if not for their dedication and ambition. A Muppet Christmas Carol is a classic, filling homes with laughter and light every holiday season, while carrying on the same important message that Charles Dickens put to paper 177 years ago. Gosh, it's so fitting. Yeah, that it that it worked out like that. I know it's amazing how it's, it's like not only is it a true adaptation because they had Dickens's own words in it, but also because of the stakes for both of them, right? Yeah, you know, and so they they were in a similar situation, both it, of them. Yeah, it was accurate in story and in the metaverse <laughs> of the the outside of it. It's it's absolutely wonderful, and it. And it does really attest to the endurance of that story and of the Muppets. So mm-hmm. together, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah. It's so it's so nice. I love this movie so much because it really does do such a good job balancing darkness and light. So this movie is fantastic. And I think that is another Christmas case closed. Hey! Nice! We're back, guys. Season five! Hey! It's, yep. We started with a banger. (laughs) Yeah. This is good. Yeah. Hitting the ground running. Exactly. Exactly. We've got more Christmas episodes coming your way. So, this season, we're going to be doing things a tiny bit differently Mm -hmm. than we used to. We are a weekly show. We've been a weekly show for the past two years. That's right. But starting with this season, what we are going to do is each month we are going to take one week off. We have a have a break week every every month to uh, you know do other things with the show. Most notably, we are starting. Another show. Secrets. Yes. No spoilers now. Yeah. We've been working on it for a while. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be premiering it at the end of this month. So this month we are going to have only three episodes. And then a fourth very special episode. Also, we're going to have a briefcase. but Right. Mm -hmm. And that one's just for bonus fun. Yeah. But not only... Like, like, don't get discouraged about missing out on an episode because... Like we said, we've got new stuff on the horizon. Plus, we're going to take that week to do some fun things that we talked about doing some. Watch movie parties, some other special uh, briefcases maybe, mm-hmm. you know, other shenanigans, man. So, And if you're a patron, be, be something extra special for you as well. That's right. Yeah. So we may be going to three episodes a month, but that fourth week is still... We're still on fire. Yeah, and we, and sometimes there's five weeks. True so that. So we yeah. will sometimes also have four episodes. Whatever it works out to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I'm just, tr- I'm just, I just want you to make sure that you know. 
<laughs> that, that 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 last week of the month is still going to have cool stuff involved. Yes, and look forward to that extra special new show yes. coming soon. More information to come. Yes, yes. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons. We got a brand new patron this month. What? Yes, we got a new patron, guys. And her name does not start with a J. So we are we are good to go with that. Oh, I'm a little. <laughs> we have so many J patrons. We have John, Joel, Jacob, Jacqueline, Anthony, Shelly, and now Linda. <laughs> Thank you so much for becoming patrons for us. And if you'd like to become a patron for as low as one dollar a month, you can find the link in all of our bios wherever on our website. Yeah. yeah. There's a nice big orange button. It's hard yes. to miss. Yes. Or if you don't want to become a patron, still hop on there and look for the drink of the week recipe. Marcy updates that yes. for every single yeah, episode. That's Woo. free. Yes, that is free. So thank you so much for listening and have a holly jolly Christmas. Copyright. Tiny Tim, who did not die. Oh, isn't that swell? <laughs> to Tiny Tim, Scrooge became a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city ever had. <laughs> And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us. God bless us, everyone. <laughs>